This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Welcome all. I have a tremendous conversation to share with you featuring the most criminally underrated musician in all of rock and heavy metal. I stand behind that statement because I'm talking about Joey Vera. Those who know, you know, because Joey's just about done it all. He's a member of Armored Saint, Fate's Warning, has played in Anthrax, a bunch of other bands as well. The catalyst for this conversation, though, is due to the launch of the new album from the supergroup, Motor Sister. Motor Sister features Joey alongside of Scott Ian from Anthrax, Jim Wilson from Roland's Band and Mother Superior, and Scott Ian's wife, who also happens to be Meatloaf's daughter, Pearl Adde. So the group is, as I say, a bit of a uh, bit of an all-star cast and the album get off it's it's a worthy album actually you'll hear why i like it throughout the conversation before we get to the chat and this is a very important conversation and milestone in my podcasting career i must say because when i started this podcast joey was one of the fellas i had in mind that i wanted to talk to i've been wanting to talk to this fella for decades i won't spoil it though i don't want to go into a whole heap of superlatives in the introduction so let's cut to the tune that I have selected for your listening pleasure. This one is titled Can't Get High Enough. And again, it's taken from the new album from Motor Sister, Get Off. You will hear that right now if you are listening via any one of the podcast apps. If you're listening or tuning in via YouTube because you want to check out the video of us talking, I can't play it, unfortunately, because I'll get shadow banned. That's just how YouTube works, or I'll get demonetized at least, and I think you also get shadow banned. Either way, we'll cut to the conversation if you're listening via YouTube, and for you people listening via the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple, etc., you're going to hear Can't Get High Enough. Let's go.
Joey, how are you going? Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm great. What's the, uh, apart from these interviews, mate, what's the day held for you thus far? The what? What's the day, what's the day been like so far, apart from the interviews, of course? Oh, well, um, fighting a bit of a flu, unfortunately. Um, It's been really nice. One of the, probably the only silver lining in this pandemic thing is I haven't been sick in two years (laughs) until yesterday. So, but it's just the flu. I tested and everything. It's negative, but it's, you know, still hitting me hard. I forgot what it felt like. It still sucks. I've had the same thing happen. I had had two in a row, something, some two viral bloody things in a row. And it's all because, you know, you probably read the, you know, the usual news reports, Australia's been bloody locked down. One of the most locked down places in the Western hemisphere. So yeah, we didn't get anything for two years, but now we're all getting all of these bloody bullshit bugs and viruses that, have been saved up for us yeah. in lieu of the two years. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's saving us a nice present after two years. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, indeed. Oh, well, yeah, we'll yes. just, we, we, need, we just need to get uh, immune to these again, all over again. Yeah, fun. Great. Yeah, time out of work. <laughs> work keeps on piling up and all the rest of it. Kids still need to, you know, get to school yeah. and all the rest of it. I know, it's, it's like life exactly. doesn't wait, does it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How have the um, how have the conversations for this album been going? Um, Motor Sister. Motor Sister. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, I had to be clear on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, really good. You know, I mean, uh, the response has been really great, uh, from what I can tell. You know, mostly just through social media. I haven't done a whole lot of interviews. Done a handful, but everybody seems to dig it. Um, the record took on a sort of more energetic life or high energy life than the previous record. And I think that's connecting with people. Mm. So that's really cool. So yeah, it's, it's going, it's going good. Look, you're right. So the opportunity to have this conversation is because of the album's called get off. So, um, for people listening in later, uh, and it is the new album from Motor Sister. It's either your second or your third. I found information a bit hard to come across uh, where we're it's up our, to. It's, it's our second record. Second. There you go. Yeah. Look, uh, I'm a seasoned rock and metal <laughs> listener, and uh, I'm also a musician, and, and my takeaway from the album is um, it's one of those, one of the few, I'm going to call it a super group. You know where I'm headed when I say that. But it's one of those one of those few supergroups where it sort of surpasses expectations, and I wouldn't say it unless I felt that way. Okay, I've been a fan of yours personally for right. decades now because I'm a bassist, so I listen intently to your performance across the albums that you appear. Magnificent bass player, I've got to say, awesome. up front. Um, Thank you. And, Thank you very look, much. Yeah, no worries. I don't think you get. I'll talk about that a bit later. I'll save some of the stuff around the bass playing for later. But I think you're criminally underrated, <laughs> um, and you don't get the recognition and the due that you, you deserve on that front because you are an innovator. But as I say, I'll get to that. Um, <coughs> look, with, with get off, you know, it's it's punk rock, it's Thin Lizzy, it's a bit <laughs> of Anthrax. You know, it's Roland's band. I could hear Roland's band in there too. It's definitely Armored Saint. Uh, it's more, but it's more than the sum of the influences and love. And it's more about the love of the band members music, the music that you guys love, you've done it all. So yeah. am I accurate there? Do you think? And does, and what does the album mean to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> the record, the first record that is, um, ride was born out of, uh, 
previous group. I'm just saying this for people that maybe don't know a lot about the band. Hmm. Um, this, this is born out of another group called Mother Superior. And um, Jim Wilson, the singer from Motor Sister, was in Mother Superior along with a couple other guys. And we were all fans of the band. Um, great, all great writers and great performers. They, Mother Superior had a very, they were very steeped in like 70s rock, you know. And then they would fuse that sometimes with things that were kind of punk rock. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons maybe why Rollins was uh, drawn to them as well is he hired them to play in his band mm. for a couple of years and uh, record with them as well. Um, <clears throat> so I think that we, we approached this band with the, with that uh, honor, you know, that love of, you know, where we all come from. We all, we're all seventies kids. All everybody in the band is, we all grew up listening to the seventies music. So we just want to, you know, bring that with us and, but also, add our where our influences has gotten us into this day so try to keep some things that are fresh this isn't like we're not trying to do a retro thing you know that's not what i mean um but you know it would be it would be ridiculous of me to not say that you know that we come from the 70s and that and some of that fabric is showing through here so i think it's it's a great record and a great group of people to work with um for those reasons because we get to kind of get to like just get in the room and hash stuff out and it's not really like totally serious like you know there isn't like a heavy weight on this group like it has to succeed it has to do this or that or it must reach this plateau or success whatever mm. so we have this kind of liberty to uh to just have fun it's cool you can hear that you can hear that you guys are having the times of your life and that there's uh, i could be mistaken here but it doesn't sound like there's a lot of pressure on you guys to perform yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, <clears throat> it just makes the whole thing. It's just, we're just doing it for fun. We That's how it started. And that's what we want to keep doing, you know? Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand how the relationship with Scott's come about, but we, were you invited to be part of the project or was it one of those organic things where you were sitting around having a few beverages and you went, Hey, let's all start a band, that sort of thing. Well, the, the true, the true backstory of this, I don't try to condense this as much as possible. Um, Scott was having his 50th birthday several years ago. I won't say how many. And, um, uh, for his party, he said, I want to have mother superior, uh, play at my party. <clears throat> and it was like, so it was like, okay, well, that, that's an idea. You know, his, his wife, Pearl was like, okay, let me, let me see about that or whatever. And then he said, but I want to be in mother superior. I want to, I don't want to watch them. I want to play in the band and I want, and I want my friends to be there too. And then I want my friends to, to also play in the band. So then it just turned into, um, well, we'll invite Jim, you know, and then I'll invite my other friends and I'll ask them if they want to jam. And that's pretty much how it started. So, you know, Scott, we were sitting around talking one day and Scott was telling us, yeah, I want to have, I want to have Jim come to the party and I want to play, I want to jam. I want, I want you and, you know, Johnny and Pearl and, uh, and I want, I want us to get together and, and learn a bunch of mother superior songs and just jam. And so mm -hmm. we invited something like 50 people. It was a relatively small party. He had a jam room at his house 
<clears throat> and so we, that's what we did. We got together, we jammed and it was super fun. It was just, it was just a complete blast. It was just awesome. Mm-hmm. And then it was after that, like literally a couple of days later, um, the photographer, Nils Lozauer, I was a famous photographer here yeah, in Los Angeles. Absolutely. He, yeah. um, he, uh, he's friends with Mike Faley over at Metal Blade. And he called Mike and he says, Hey, he was at, uh, I'm sorry. Um, Neil was at the party witnessing this. He's also a mother superior fan. And he said, Mike, I was at this party with Scott last weekend. And what this, they got together and they played all these mother superior songs. It was the best thing I've ever seen. You guys should put it out. Just sort of like a, just sort of maybe like a half joke sort of, you know? And so Mike called my wife, Tracy, who works at Metal Blade. She's, she runs, she's basically oh, the wow. president okay. of the label. He said, Hey, why didn't you, you know, why wasn't I invited to this thing? How was it? You know, was it good? <laughs> you know, and she was like, it was amazing. You know, you should have been there or whatever. So he said, Neil says we should put it out. And then she, <laughs> she said, that's a really good idea. So then she, she basically called everyone and said, Hey, uh, would you guys be interested in putting out a record on metal blade? And we said, yeah, let's do it. It was pretty much like that. It was so weird. Yeah. It's a great album. Um, look, I get sent a lot of material and there's a, a lot of these super groupy sort of things that do come out, but to be honest, a lot of them suck too, but <laughs> one is one that's going to motor sister sounds like as though there's, it doesn't always work out this way, as I'm sure you're aware. I mean, you've played with more than almost anybody out there as far as bass playing is concerned. But it, as you will have likely experienced, it doesn't always work out when you take it from the fun environment of the party. Then you sit down and consciously try to write and record. So was, was that yeah. process, was, was, it, was it an easy process or was it a difficult process effectively? It was pretty easy because our intention, as soon as we decided we were going to make a record, we immediately all agreed that we had to basically recreate what we did at the party. So mm. the only way to do that was to play live. So we went in as a group, we got in the same room. We didn't do any, you know, click tracks and layering of instruments and when, you know, drums first, then the bass, then the guitar. I mean, we all played together in the same room, including the vocalists. And we did everything live. Now, truth be told, we, at the end, we ended up redoing the vocals because there was just way too much bleed in the microphones and stuff. Mm. But that's how Ride was made. Um, that record is all alive. And so we, when we made this record, um, you know, Get Off, <clears throat> we just wanted to keep that same aesthetic, you know. So we basically did the same thing. We all got in a room, facing each other in the room, and no click tracks, just, you know, John clicks us in, and then we go at the song until we get it. And, you know, we'd, we'd never play a song more than two or three times, and then it would be done. So we tried to keep, uh, keep that aesthetic uh, really alive. You know, we're not concerned with everything being perfect and everything being, yeah, just perfect. And it's just, it's like the worst thing ever for this mm-hmm. band. Yeah, to kill the groove. Yeah, it's just the vibe goes out the window, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, as I say, I get sent a lot of material and the amount of shit that is quantized is ridiculous. It's still. Um, just because yeah. you've got the technology yeah. virtually for nothing doesn't mean you should use it. You know, it's it's like you yeah. say, bands need to breathe in the re- in the in the rehearsal studio and then try to translate that. I think to um, to to a record, and you guys have done that fairly successfully there. So, and and this is definitely not a criticism of of the album, by the way, or your exceptional playing. But I've got to say, I, I would have loved to have hear you. Um, 
branch out a bit more into, I mean, I've only listened to it for, I've only had it since last night. But um, uh, I rate your bass playing incredibly highly. I would just love to hear more of it. That's the only comment that I've got to say. I was <laughs> hoping to hear a bit more of it. <laughs> so well, did, some did you songs get the chance? that got more than others. Yeah, did you get the, <laughs> well, did you songs, get the chance anymore? Yeah, sorry. You mean playing, like actual playing playing more? Yeah, just, I mean, you, you can shred. Just going and, off? Yeah, you can <laughs> shred and you can stay in the pocket, well, but it's lovely to hear both. Yeah, you know, this record was, um, it's funny the way we work. Um, we, we, we've been writing this record for a long time, like over two years, just really piecemeal, just bits and pieces here and there. And it really wasn't until, you know, uh, we got together in November of 19, I think it was November, October, November of 19 for our first rehearsal. So we we're kind of like sharing demo tapes back and forth, that kind of thing. Hmm. But we got in the room the first day and we basically just had a bunch of parts and ideas and lyrics that weren't written yet or anything. And we basically wrote like nine songs the first day. So, <laughs> you know, it just, that just shows you like how fast yeah. we put this together kind of. And then we did one more rehearsal session after that um, in December. And we wrote basically another couple of songs and then we were basically done and we played a live show in LA right around that time. <clears throat> and we went in the studio in January or February of uh, 20, right when COVID was hitting. But um, so, you know, the songs, the, I didn't have a whole lot of time to live with them, you know, to be like, you know, play them. I've, I literally probably played these songs. I don't know maybe 10 times total before I actually recorded it. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of time to just let, you know, feel what part needs could use more lifting or more, more melody, let's say, or something like that. You know, um, the songs were relatively new to me. So I went into this, just like, keep it simple. Don't, you know, no, no reason to show off for mm. any particular reason. Um, you know, some of the songs, more than others have some things that are maybe more interesting, but mostly I wanted to just hold it down, you know, yep. kind of went for Cliff Williams approach of just being like, just lock in with the drums and just keep it simple. Um, but, um, but there, you know, there's, there's a few things out in this, in the record that, you know, let me go off a bit, you know, there's a sooner or later, the song sooner or later, I was, for some reason that song reminded me of a Tom Petty song. Hmm. So I was just, I just felt this sort of Tom Petty melody thing with the bass guitar. So I just sort of branched out and did it and everyone seemed to like it. So that's, that's what ended up being the main part for that song. But, um, so, you know, um, yeah, my answer is hey, the songs were sort of new to me and, and, uh, you know, in making a record, you know, I've always said this, you know, the most important thing is the song number one. So as long as I can serve the song, then, then my job's done, you know, I can, I can start going off and getting crazy, get all Jack Bruce or whatever when yeah. we play live, you know? So. 
I think that's admirable because a lot of a lot of you hear like as you know they've got like nine string bass players these days for God's sakes, but <laughs> it, it's not it's not in the pocket though, so it just sounds like a mess. It just sounds like a kid swiveling. <laughs> Some of it does not. I mean, I'm old school. I play four and four and five string basses. You know, with a female vocalist, I play with a five string bass. I just find that it's a good counterbalance there. But um, yeah. look, the, the comment that yeah. I, I wanted to make for you is I've long felt that you are the metal equivalent to Nathan East. Have you have you ever been given that feedback? Wow. You know, it's funny as someone else said that to me, um, mm. one other person said that to me and that, that's, that's crazy. I never thought I'd hear that again. That's, you know, that's a big honor. Um, you know, he's kind of, he's, he's like that, you know, Nathan's, I mean, he's the shit, you know, he holds it down pocket groove. He can, he can have chops when he needs to, you know, no frill, not like not flashy, you know? Mm. So yeah. I mean, you know, when I was younger, when I was first in a band, you know, like early Armored Saint would say, hmm. you know, you always, you kind of, when you're young, you feel like you have something to prove all the time, you know? So um, I definitely had that in my playing. I always wanted to write something that was impressive, you know, <laughs> as the bass part, you know, but it wasn't really until much later that, I, I don't know, when I was in my thirties, I guess, and 30s i guess 30s and, like, and early 40s when i just started to say like you know it's all about the song it's not about me you know like what the hell what am i doing you know i mean it's not like i was going out there and being completely crazy and you know what some some players and some bands are good for that they're good for chops and, and riffs you know just um you know players that are amazing and, and that's I, I love a lot of that kind of music, but just for, for me, that's not, it just wasn't in my soul and my fabric growing up. I grew up with, with the old school players in the seventies and a lot of them were R and B and funk players. So hmm. I was like, I can hear that. Yeah. I was mostly drawn towards that and blues players and blues rock players, I should say. So that's really what my foundation is. And that's pretty much the thing that I excel at most. I I was never really a great shredder and uh, you know, you, I, you, everyone goes through their period of, you know, practicing, practicing, practicing. Cause I want to keep up with the other shredders and the other guys. But at some point I just said, ah, it's just, it's not me. It's not my voice, you know? Mm-hmm. So my voice is, is, is what we hear now. So <laughs> yeah, except it's think- not as worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, so, something else about you and I don't know whether people are aware, but, um, I think you play you play guitar. You play guitar very well. Yeah, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pro, I started with guitar first. Yeah, but usually what happens then? And, and I'm the opposite. I'm a bassist that switched to guitar for a period of time. Now I'm back on the bass. But so effectively, mm. I played the guitar as a bass player does. You know, just sticking to uh, bar chords, this sort of thing, just trying to lock it down. Mm. But my, my point is there is that you did have a you, you do have a solo album out there from 1994, uh, the A Thousand Faces, if I'm not mistaken, it's called. And mm. um, there are a couple of videos out there for people to sample. Um, but it does show you, and I mean a lot of that stuff to me sounded uh it, it fit in really well with the alternative music that was going on at the time sponge alice in chains Soundgarden, this sort of stuff was did you get a bit of um like was there an opportunity to do a follow-up after that well i do have a, a second record um but it's not um it's not it was it came out much later it came out in 2005 
Uh-huh. Um, and it's called, um, it's the, it's a Chinese fire drill. The record's called Circles. And this record was, um, it came out originally on Prog Rock Records, but it's since been discontinued. But you can still find it on CD Baby and uh, yeah. a few other places digitally. And that record is way more, like, way more influenced by my work with Fate's Warning. So a lot of it's really proggy and kind of artsy. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, there's a little bit of tool in there kind of, but it's, mm. it's not really that heavy, but so it's, a it's a really big, complete 180 from thousand faces. It's completely different. Thousand faces was kind of like a project project thing. It was, mm-hmm. I had just, uh, Armored Saint had just broken up and I was sort of in this phase of who am I, you know, <laughs> what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And so I just started writing music for no apparent reason. And I wrote a lot of different kinds of songs and some of them were sort of folky and some of them were hard rock and some of them were semi-industrial and, you know, they were uh, reflecting the time, 1993, 94. And so I had this opportunity to put it all, put it together. And someone said, you know, you can use my studio if you want to, like that never happens. Right. And record all these songs. <laughs> so I said, excuse me. I said, that would be amazing. I mean, thank you. You know? So I went in and recorded, you know, whatever, eight, 10 songs or something. And so it's a bit of a mishmash. It's super unfocused. You know, you've, you've heard it, I guess, but um, that was a whole one thing, you know, this, the second one circles is much more. Uh, my intention was much more focused and uh, one direction was taken in a particular way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I've always played guitar um, since day one. I started guitar when I was 13 or something. And uh, I switched to bass when I was 15 or 16. And then um, I became, it became my primary instrument at that point, but I, um, I always played guitar. I mean, I never write music on the bass. I write everything I've ever written has always really? been on a guitar. So um, um, there may be some exceptions, but uh, mostly I'd say 95% of it is written on the guitar. And, you know, I've, I don't practice guitar a lot. I, I could probably be a lot better if I, if I, again, you know, put some <laughs> hours into it, but I just, you know, again, I, it, it facilitates, what's in my head for the most part um and then uh yeah so i've i've my learning of theory has made my guitar playing better so Mm -hmm. i've I've become better in that sense you know more aware of melody and chord structures and harmony and stuff so most guitarists who pick up the bass sound bloody awful in my opinion they they don't know how to groove and they don't stick in the pocket you you are the only person that I'm aware of out there of, of significance. You know, you can see a guy in a bar or whatever, but I'm talking about a globally recognised figure within rock and metal that's, that's successfully made that transition and you sound like a bass player. Now, to people listening, they're like, of course a bass player playing the bass will sound like a bass player, except if you're a musician and you can hear <laughs> guitarists playing yeah. across across the beat, you're underneath it. You know, you, you know, you know what yes. I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, you know, and I, I think uh, I think I did it early enough to to be like, you know, I'm basically a bass player. I'm not I'm not a guitar player first. I'm a bass player first. So, mm. but I think that being introduced to the guitar first, um, I went into it with 
bit more things in my toolbox, let's say. Mm. So by the time like I was 15 or 16, when I picked it up and I picked it up really quickly. And I think it's for those reasons, because I had played guitar for a couple of years and new chords and the notes in the chord and that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, I was 15 you know? mm. <laughs> and uh, no, no, uh, no instruction really. So, um, and at that time, you know, was when I picked up the bass, I very quickly moved to finger playing um, because when yeah. the first year I, I was playing with my, with a pick, obviously, because I was a guitar player, but I made the move pretty quickly to fingers. Um, and I was listening to like, you know, Geezer Butler, and Verdine White from Earth, Wind and Fire, oh, Jock, Jocko Pistorius, of course. And, you know, at that point I was, I was already introduced, introduced to those guys. So I started trying to imitate them, what I was hearing with my fingers. And so I did that fairly early. And I think that that's been one of the benefits to me making the switch over to bass. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I've, I've always wanted to, as I said, up top, I've been a fan for decades and I've wanted to have this conversation with you. Uh, so thanks for giving me that, that deep insight. And yeah. And I do think for anybody listening, do check out the a thousand faces album. Um, you know, if you've been given an opportunity, like a tour support to a ministry or a primus or something like that, you never know what, what could have happened there because you, you are a front man too. You've got a lot of, you know, you talk about a lot in your kit bag. You got you go well outside of the string side of things. You've actually got the charisma to be a front man as well, in my opinion. I don't know. I mean, I kind of, you know, to be honest with you, that thousand faces thing. Mm. It was actually me dabbling in that um, because I actually put a band together and I did a few shows um, around here in California um, mm. with me as the front man, um, and. It, you know, it was okay for like 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and then I got, I, and I realized eh, that's, I don't need to be the front man. And it's, I'm just not, I'm not super comfortable in that skin as the front man. Mm. I'm happy to be a team player. I think my biggest asset is that I'm a really good team player. So I'm, I'm willing to be with other people and contribute in a way that it doesn't, you know, that it only enhances the, whatever the, the experiences on stage. I just want to help it and not take away from it, not change it. You know, so I think that's my biggest asset right there. And that I, you know, I mean, I, I certainly like to be animated in that role, mm. you know, <clears throat> maybe that's what you're referring to. Um, and as I do, music makes me feel a certain way. And it's the one place on stage is the, only, the one place I feel a complete freedom from everything. Yes, I, I understand that. Yeah, I relate to that. So oh, it's a yeah. yeah. So it's a place for me to to it's it's a happy place. So I can just be in that moment at that moment, whatever. And it's going to be completely different tomorrow. And it was completely different yesterday. But I try to revel in that moment. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think you. I mean, you look the part. You had the hair. You know, you had the lights <laughs> behind you going through there. You almost. Hey, it's a, it's a reference that I hope you take as a compliment, but there's some Sammy Hagar well, stuff you. going on there, you know. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, like I said, we, I tried it and it was fun. And it's funny, like one of the one of the shows that we played, we opened for Corn. If you can believe that. Oh my god! Um, yeah. This was this was before Corn was even <laughs> selling out clubs, yeah. but they did a gig in like I think it was Tempe, Arizona, or Phoenix, Arizona, 
And I don't know how, but we got offered to open the show. So I'm like, okay. I had no idea who Corn was, but they were going on last. So, okay, they're headlining and I'll we go on before them. No idea who they were. None. Not a clue. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I was pretty impressed by them because it was so outside the box. It was when I saw their set, it was just like, wow, what the hell's going on with this band? You know, super dissonant, crazy drummer, you know, singers going nuts too. And it, it was pretty, pretty cool to see. And in hindsight, it was cool to see at the time. It was like, wow, what is this? This is, it was almost weird and uh, off-putting, you know, but obviously great band, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they've been a successful band. Uh, I, I don't know whether yeah. they're a better band in terms of, from my perspective, than Fate's Warning, or it's definitely not better than Armored Saints. Sorry, that's an opinion I'll put out there. But uh, well, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> well, that, there's my, that's my little uh, <coughs> claim to fame there. I opened for Corn one day. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, um, what's his name? Fieldy, the bassist. I wonder if Fieldy knew who you were. No, and um, that's, that's a good question. Good question. I never met those guys. So I don't know them. I mean, I, I'm, if I knew them, and, and if they expressed any kind of like, "Hey, I remember you from whatever Black in the Day," whatever, and I said, "You know what? I actually opened for you guys one time in Arizona." They'd be like, "What? Really? <laughs> Why?" <laughs> it was funny too because the, the the funny it was funny because we we were playing our set, and uh, you know the audience was like. I'm obviously at that time, it was a bunch of young people, right? Uh, cause you know, it was, just, it was the new subgenre boiling mm -hmm. under, you know, grassroots thing was starting. So we'd end the song and then we'd hear like more, 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 more. And we were like, are they really are they like asking for an encore? Like we're not done yet. You know, why are they saying more? And then I realized they're not saying more. They're saying corn, corn, oh, right. corn. Get off the fucking stage. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, true story. I, I have seen them and I've got to say, I don't really get it. I, I certainly understand the appeal of the first two albums. I'll say that now. But beyond that, I, I'm not really there. Them and Limp Biscuit and stuff really ruined, I think, a lot of metal for, for people. And it's it's not, look, more power to them for the success they've had. I just don't know. Uh, here's an important point. I don't know how much of a gateway they've truly acted for people to investigate heavier and more detailed sounds such as Armored Saint. You know, the old gateway theory, you know, bands yeah. with Led Zeppelin and they might get a, a sort of Metallica and they end up at death and black metal. Very common. Yeah. Um, but I don't know whether Corn do that. I tend to find the Corn fans stay in that particular precinct musical precinct and don't sort of dive deeper into more more complicated and dare i say more mature more mature sounds mm -hmm. but that's a hey, this is my uh, opinion yeah 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 you know they they have their thing and they do it they do it well for what they do and you know at that at that point when they reached the masses you know the masses unfortunately are very rarely invested in searching out anything deeper it's unfortunate but it's true but but hey, you know, it's it's my my hat's off to them. They were very successful. Another significant partnership uh, is yours <laughs> and uh, Jack Frost's. I love what you guys did in Seven Witches, and I've got to say, Jack is one of my all-time favorite guitarists. So seeing both of you in a band together is just was was unbelievable. <laughs> can that can that ever happen again? Well, I was I would I never say never about anything. So um, I would love to work with Jack again. You know, we're we're bros we we hang out but we don't see each other we live on different parts of the coast but 
um, when we do see each other, it's like no time has passed. So um, I'm still in touch with him. You know, he's he's doing. I think he's playing with Alba Nova right now. Believe it or not. Um, well, okay. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, I would love to do more stuff with Jack. He's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. He's his most recent album's an absolute killer album, uh, Brothers in Arms. I was I hoping heard to that hear yet. you on it. I was hoping to hear you want it. To be honest with you, I wish he invited you to participate, but uh, <laughs> because uh, that was the only thing that was really lacking was some really. I mean, there's some good bass playing on there. No disrespect to the bassists that are on there, but uh, um, you know, I, I just I like what you guys do together. It's it, it's tough. It's heavy, but it's groovy. Cool. Cool. Thank you. you know? Yeah. Um, punching the sky. I, I would never say it was a return to form or anything like that, but there was certainly a pop of that <coughs> album, wasn't there? Did, did you feel that, that there was a resurgence in interest in the group on the back of that album? Well, I think it's been something that's been growing. Um, the, the resurgence, if you will, or the, I don't know. Yeah. I guess resurgence of, at least the resurgence of the perception of the band. Mm, yeah. Um, that has been growing since 2010, I would say, when we did, when we released La Raza. And, ten, you know, then five years after that, we did Win Hands Down. And then another five passed and we had Punch in the Sky. So in 15 years, we've got three records out, <laughs> which is really long by most standards. But um, I think that maybe that it benefits us in terms of like, of what we feel like writing and, and when we feel like writing and how that's affecting the writing. Um, <clears throat> kind of the same situation with Motor Sister. We don't really have a big uh, schedule that's um, weighing on us, you know, with Metal Blade and with our career. We don't have to be on a set schedule. We can pretty much work when and how we want to. Um, and we have that great liberty with Metal Blade. So I think that's benefited the songwriting and the music that we've put out because I don't know, it, maybe it gives us time to really step back and contemplate the music that we're, that we're going to write for the next record sort of thing. You know, um, we've never really been a band that's repeated ourselves. Um, not, not really since even since day one, every record has been a little different than the last. And I think we're still doing that. So I actually, uh, embraced that as one of the great tra uh, traits that we have as a band is the our ability to kind of do that to kind of not make the same record twice every every record yeah. is always a bit different <clears throat> so we kind of pride ourselves at this point on taking chances and experimenting a little more and bringing in influences from older older days and stuff and i think that you know you know i, I it would be mistake a miss of me to not admit that social media has something to do with it too, because, you know, let's face it, it was really starting to become something more in the early to mid two thousands. And so that has certainly not hurt us in terms of reaching people and, and sort of maybe if you will, reintroducing people too, to mm -hmm. people that maybe they, maybe they've heard the name or their parents, have an old t-shirt from the nineties or whatever, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, the internet has obviously brought us into this forum where we can reach people in an instant mostly. So, um, that's been a big, big plus. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a good thing. 
was one of the albums of 2020, without a doubt. Uh, you're, you're given the, the quality of the musicians and the fact that John is one of the all-time great rock and metal frontmen and vocalists. I've got to say, yeah. uh, for people out there who don't know, he was invited to join Metallica, if I'm not mistaken. That's how good John is, <clears throat> and of course, he was in Anthrax. Um, but yeah. was, was there was there ever? A, do you feel as though looking back and with decades of hindsight now? Was there ever a sliding moment for Armored Saint? Because I just don't feel like the group ever critically a critical acclaimed musicians like me love the group in terms of, you know, the corn fans, this sort of thing. In hindsight, was was there a sliding doors moment where you feel like you might have been able to reach the broader masses, but maybe the opportunity wasn't taken? Well, I don't know about it wasn't taken, but we I would say maybe that moment came when we released um, Symbol of Salvation in 1992, um, because, you know, we kind of had this story at that point. We'd been a band for <clears throat> several years at several records on a major label. And then we got dropped and then we got, we were on our way to be doing something. Um, and, uh, you know, making Symbol was very hard for us. We were having to pick up the pieces after losing Dave Pritchard to leukemia. And so yep. there was a lot of anticipation and expectation on the record. And when the record came out, it got like rave reviews everywhere. Everyone loved it. It was got killer reviews and got a lot of airplay on MTV and stuff like that. But the music climate was saying otherwise. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the music climate in America was like making an about face pretty much. And the, the very word heavy metal was becoming a bad word. So, and mostly due to uh, hair metal in the mm -hmm. late 80s. Um, and so, you know, the Seattle scene was obviously a shot in the arm that we all needed. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I still do. And um, it was something that was needed. It was, it was ebb and flow and we needed it at that point. Just unfortunately for us, putting out, <laughs> you know, a new record and that kind of like this, I don't know. It was like, it was almost like a, a coming back together record. It was this terrible timing. The timing mm. was just awful for that, you know? Um, and, and we would say like years later, we'd say, you know, if, and people will still say this, if that record came out at a different time, things would have been different. If that may be true, you know, I mean, nothing's guaranteed, of course. Right. Um, but, it may be true. We might've had a different chance, a different shot at reaching more people if it came out at a different time. So I would say to answer your question, that that would probably be it. 92 when Symbol of Salvation came out was maybe that moment where it was like, um, it, it was just bad timing. It was like, no, you can't control bad timing. It's just, it is what it is, you know? So uh, that would probably right be it. Yeah, great album. The album that I, I um, was first aware of you guys because I was only 14 or 15 back at there at the time, but a killer album. I think Rain of Fire is on that album too, you know, the big single yeah. that came out with the video yep. and stuff. That's where I picked you guys up actually was from that video. But but yeah. you've alluded you've alluded to something there I've got to, got to address. Please, please tell me that Armoured Saint, I don't have any problem with the hair metal bands and I don't think anybody with a brain does, the so-called hair metal bands, but were you, uh -huh. guys, were you guys lumped in with that? Because I always looked at you guys as a, as a metal band like Manowar or or something like that, you know what I mean? Like in that quadrant. Well, we, <coughs> excuse me. Again, this was a little bit of a quagmire we found ourselves in 
in the mid eighties, um, we came out and, um, when we first got signed, let's say it was early, it was 83, 84. And, um, at, by that time, all the bands in LA were kind of like, um, dressing the same. They were all dressing like Iron Maiden, striped white pants, striped black and white pants, you know, leather vests, uh, high, you know, skinny jeans and high top tennis shoes. Mm -hmm. And so everyone dressed the same bullet belts and all that stuff. So we wanted to try something different. We wanted to stand out from the rest. So we were really into bands like Queen and Kiss and Alice Cooper, bands that had this big theatrics, Jethro Tull. You know, we're very, when you go to the concert, it's like a real, it's a, it's a show. It's a, it takes you away out of reality, you know? And so mm -hmm. we were really inspired by that. And we wanted to, to try to go in that direction with our band. So we made that choice to suit up in this road warrior armor. We were heavily influenced by the road warrior and Mad Max at that time. And, um, I don't believe heaven, the band heaven was out yet, or we hadn't known about them yet, but they did something similar. But, um, you know, so it kind of worked in the beginning because we were just like a powerhouse live band. And then we were wearing this armor. Like we looked like apocalyptic, crazy dudes. And, and it worked at first and the people loved it. It was, it was great. But the thing that started to shift is when, when thrash metal started to become more popular, yeah, right. I'd say around 85 and 86, when it was really starting to take off, um, <clears throat> you started to find fans picking and choosing what side they hung out with. And in the beginning, everyone was the same. Uh, in the early eighties, it was like, you could like Lee Aaron, you could like Manowar, you could like Judas Priest, you could like, you know, Nine Inch Nails or whatever. And you could like all of it and it was all fine. But the, when it got into the, the mid eighties and especially when some of the more glam bands started to become more popular, people started to take alliances with certain, with, with those scenes and you had, you couldn't do both. Some people did both, but you, a lot of people wouldn't do both. So like a, a glam guy would have a hard time going to a, an SOD or, you know, like an anthrax show in, mm. in the early to mid eighties he might get his ass kicked, you know? <laughs> so it was a, it was different then. It's, it's a little more tolerant now, obviously, but it was start. It was, there was a splintering and we started to have, um, we started to find ourselves in the middle for some reason, because we, we didn't really associate with thrash metal or definitely not the hair metal bands either. We were just, well, we we're just ourselves. We we're just being a heavy metal rock band that was influenced by, some of the bands I mentioned, but also Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Saxon, and New River British Heavy Metal, obviously. And so we, you know, it just got to a point where um, we started to have a, a little bit of a identity crisis where, you know, where are we? What, you know, mm. in the end, we actually had more in common with the thrash crowd because, because our live show was friggin' crazy. You know, we were just really high energy and people always, to this day, some people call us a thrash band, which I never really totally understood, but I get why they do it, but um, I don't totally, totally understand that. Um, and we've never really been lumped in with the, with the hair metal scene at all, really. But, you know, when, when Raising Fear was coming out, we started to drop the armor 
<clears throat> the armor was coming off. And so now we're back into regular clothes. It's 1987, 88, you know, and like the hair's kind of still poofy and teased up. And like we sort of sort of look like a hair band, but like not not a glam hair band, but just like a band with hair, you know. <laughs> and so there may be in, may have been some confusion at that point in the late 80s and, and even in the early 90s. I mean, early 90s when symbol was coming out because again we had this look that was just kind of like leather jackets and jean jackets and and hair and it wasn't you weren't quite sure what we were you know if you didn't know anything about us so yeah we 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 would get lumped in with both of those parties and so that was one of the things that was a bit of a struggle for us was we didn't really belong to either one of them mm. Mm. Unfortunately, I've got to wind things up because I've got to go to work, get back to work. Uh, it sucks, to be honest with you, because I've got a heap more questions I want to ask you, but I want to, <laughs> want to finish with this one question uh, sure. for you. Uh, it's about Australia. How can, how can I go past a question about Australia and your <laughs> 2003 tour in Anthrax? I loved watching that that oh. particular version. Of, I love Frank, by the way. I'm not throwing any shade at Frank whatsoever. Lovely guy. I've spoken to him a couple of times. But, boy, it was it was a real treat to see you play in anthrax alongside of a john that version of the band i think would be would be my favorite so was what, well, what you what were your memories of playing playing in australia well um <clears throat> it was pretty crazy because um i this was at the start of my run with them first mm. we did japan right before that so i did like nine shows in japan and then we flew straight to australia and we started those runs and this was all new to me i was like trying to get my feet on the ground with the material and the live show and keeping up with them physically was like, took some time, you know, cause as you know, as anyone that's seen them, it's, it's a high energy situation. So, uh, I was still getting my legs and, uh, my memories, I'd never been to Australia. It was my first time. So I was just in awe of the country. It was, it was a beautiful place. I loved it. It's a lot of it reminded me of, um, California and that felt, comfortable to me because that's where I'm from and that's where I live. So it felt like home sort of, um, in a way, um, food was amazing. People were super cool and great. I, it was, it was almost everything and more than I was expecting. Um, the, the physical part of it was, is took a toll on me though. I got sick in the first couple of days and, um, we had a lot of shows <clears throat> in a row and, um, you, you know, Australia is a big place. So you have to, you can't get on a, on a tour bus and drive to the next city in, in eight hours. Like you have to fly everywhere. So we were fl taking flights every morning. So after staying up, you know, doing a show, staying up late, you know, of course, you know, I'm excited to be playing with anthrax. I was head over heels just stoked for that. So, you know, I'm partying probably a little bit too much than I should have. Then I got sick. And flying when you're sick is just the worst thing ever. And uh, so I just, I held on and, uh, you know, got through all the shows and they were, they were a blast, you know, I mean, the, you know, it was just had a great time. The shows were great. The crowds were amazing. It was really cool. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know how to end this conversation except to say I wish I wish I had far more time, um, but unfortunately <laughs> I don't, mate. Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking. Yeah, I, I actually I've got to give you this feedback. I actually started this podcast to talk to people like you. There was three or four people, and you're one of them. 
Um, but that I started the podcast in 2017 in the hopes that I'd talk to. So when when Chris sent across the opportunity to chat with either Scott or Pearl and the other members of the Benz, only one name that I was looking at, and that's yours. And I've just so admired your uh, your wow. playing through the years, the way you've conducted yourself too. There are frightfully few interviews with you out there. Um, I, I don't think... I'd love to see more more videos online. I used to read your old columns in metal magazines on bass playing. Um, uh-huh. you, could, you could find those magazines and you would that, – that's how I really got introduced to you. I'd see your name and, wow. you know, there was you wow. and Steve, Steve DiGiorgio kept on coming up, wow, yeah. you yeah. know, in rock and yeah. metal. You know, there's always, you know, Steve Harris and Les Claypool and those guys. But you can't be them. Their style, is, it's inimitable. But I think you can aim to – yourself, Doug Wimbish – you know, the, mm. these, yourself and Doug, wow. I think, the, yourself and Doug, I'd actually say, are the two, my two favourite rock and metal bass, but probably my, maybe my two favourite bass players ever. Um, and wow. and I've, li- wow. I've listened to Thank the you. way that, I've listened to the way that you stuck to the pocket and you've just driven it through and you have always played for the song, but there's videos of you out there doing some mad slap and groove stuff, Curtis, you know, your Larry Graham stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, just congratulations mm-hmm. on on, on yeah. just on doing it, on being a bassist and being able to do that and just surviving in the in the very notorious well, music well, industry. Yeah. <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, uh, well, look, I hope the rest of the calls go well and uh, thanks very much again, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks, bro. No worries. Cheers. All right. Bye. Bye. One of the wonderful perks about doing this, I'd never call it a job, but this hobby of mine, if you like, because it isn't a money spinner, it's something that I do for the pure love out of it, is that I get an opportunity to talk to musical heroes, and that's exactly what Joey is. Some people have cartoon characters, Marvel comic people, whatever the hell that shit is. I don't really understand that, but I'm not knocking it. I just don't understand it. I also admire sports people, but I do place the musician's performance above all others. And Joey is right up there as far as I'm concerned, as you heard me talk about toward the end there. So thanks for tuning in. And before I let you go, I'd truly appreciate if you stick around and listen to me talk up my book that has recently been released. Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Rock music, heavy metal and beyond, there is so much in there that you can wrap your ears around, which I'll talk to you all about in a moment. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew Mackay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. 
Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded and, and he was into having his, his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.